Diane Meyer, I'm looking at your publicity photo, your headshot at the moment, and I want to talk to you about it. It's remarkable. You're pictured seated uh, in front of a blue background. There's contrajour light behind you. You're smiling. Your hands are in your lap, palms upturned, open, in a pose that could be prayerful, could be meditative, could be simply open to what the universe is throwing at you. Uh, It is the most remarkable headshot I have ever seen in my career as a journalist. What's the story behind this photograph? They asked me what position might symbolize the work we were trying to do. And I told them that when we are teaching medical students and residents and others, we talk about body posture as a form of communication. So, for example, if you are, if you are standing in the doorway with your arms crossed and one, and, you know, one foot out the door, all the patient experiences is that you're trying to get out of there as quickly as you can, no matter what words you're saying. That body language is a huge component of what others understand from us. So what we teach is to pay attention to body language. So don't cross your legs. Don't cross your arms. Sit with your you know, legs, not crossed, but just flat on the ground, and place your hands, because the tendency when you're stressed or you're anxious or you're in a rush is to cross your arms. Which, which symbolizes that you're stressed and anxious and in a rush, and the patient sees that. So what we say is to literally put your hands on your knees or on your legs because it signals your openness to the patient as a person and your interest in hearing from them without ever saying a word. Your body posture is a very powerful message. And again, this is not typically taught in medical school or residency, and we don't think about it, but it is very, very powerful. So that photograph was taken uh, deliberately demonstrating that body posture and that body language. Have people commented on it to you in the past? They haven't, actually. You're the first person who has, which is interesting. It's lovely. It really is lovely. It creates an aura around you. It's, it's like a halo. It's a, it's a very sacred looking image. I'll go that far. It really is special. I will tell the photographer she'll be really, really pleased. You can see the photo of Dr. Diane Meyer by visiting our Twitter account, we pinned it there. Our Twitter handle is human underscore caring. Diane Meyer is a professor of geriatrics and palliative medicine at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City, where she's also a professor of medical ethics. She has just stepped down as the CEO of the Center to Advance Palliative Care, CAPSI as it's known a national organization devoted to increasing access to quality palliative care for people living with a serious illness and for their families. 
Under Diane Meyer's leadership, the number of palliative care programs in U.S. hospitals has more than tripled in the past decade. Dr. Meyer has written and lectured widely, and in 2008, she was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Diane Meyer joins us today to talk about palliative care from her home in New York. Dr. Meyer, welcome. I'm so glad that you can be with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Back in 2008, at the time that you were awarded the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, you said that in many ways, I see the field of palliative care as rekindling the originating impulses of the healing professions. What did you mean by that? In, in, in the days before I was uh, a doctor myself, the medical profession was very focused on the relief of suffering. The image of the doctor making a home visit with the black bag in which he or she, mostly he, carried pain medicine like liquid morphine. Um, the expectation was that physicians would, would address pain and suffering. And there wasn't a whole lot else we could do until after World War II. World War II is when antibiotics became broadly available to the public. I think people don't realize how recent that phenomenon mm -hmm. is. And prior to antibiotics, most people died of infection. They died, you know, if they got the flu and they got pneumonia, they died. If they got a bacteria that went into their bloodstream, they died. If they were old and had a urinary tract infection and became septic from that, they died. We could not treat those things. So death tended to be unpredictable, sudden, um, relatively rapid, a relatively rapid process. And the role of the physician, aside from things like setting fractures, um, mechanical types of medical interventions was really one of being present, um, hovering, assuring the patient that they were, regardless of how ill they were, still a valuable and precious fellow human, deserving of attention and deserving of efforts to relieve any misery that the illness might be causing. And then what happened? So after World War II and the Flexner Report, medical schools became very focused, A, on research. And the research was the financial driver of medical schools, meaning that getting dollars to conduct medical research was the predominant source of income for academic medical centers. And that is still the case. And what did that do? That created incentives for doctors to shift their focus from patient care and even from education and into research because, frankly, that's where the money was. And medical schools needed that to, to grow and to compete in the modern era. So during my lifetime, the Academic medical centers connected to medical schools became research engines and predominantly National Institutes of Health, NIH-funded research engines. 
And that led to increasing subspecialization of medicine. We stopped mm -hmm. really paying attention to the need for primary care and generalists. Um, when I was growing up, my family had a GP, and he took care of my parents and me and my sisters, made home visits. Um, those people aren't around anymore. Now we have a doctor right. for every organ system. We have a doctor for the kidney and the heart and the brain and the bones and arthritis and infections and cancer. And there were many gains that were associated with that ever-increasing subspecialization. We are much better at diagnosing disease. We are much better at treating it, at prolonging life, even at curing some things that used to not be curable. But what we have lost is the ability to care for the whole patient because each specialist mm. is trained very deeply but not broadly. And when you lose sight of the whole patient, you lose sight of the experience of illness and its impact on the patient and its impact on those who love the patient. And the field of palliative care grew up in reaction to that or as compensation for that in many ways. Grew up in an environment where the patient perhaps wasn't feeling heard. Correct. The, a common situation for, say, an 87-year-old who comes to the hospital with pneumonia and is admitted to the hospital to get intravenous antibiotics, and they're confused because they're in a strange environment and not with familiar people, so it's very common for people in that age range to become what we call delirious when placed in the hospital. When people become delirious, they're often restrained to keep them from pulling out IVs or from falling uh, or from getting out of bed when they're not supposed to get out of bed, which of course markedly worsens the agitation and confusion. And then you start giving drugs to reduce the agitation and confusion and those have side effects. And then you've got at this point six or seven different subspecialists taking care of the patient, and with the best of intentions. Everyone has the best of intentions. The more we do, the further the patient mm -hmm. is from being able to recover and return mm -hmm. to their situation at home. So the, the long view, is it that there should be more palliative care specialists or that more specialists should behave like palliative care specialists already do now? Well, it's both and, not either or. So one of the consequences of becoming ever more subspecialized, fragmented, siloed, the practice of modern medicine, is that any attention to basic skills like relief of symptoms, relief of pain, relief of shortness of breath, relief of constipation, relief of anxiety and depression, suddenly were not relevant to the teaching of, say, an orthopedic surgeon or an oncologist or a cardiologist, even though, of course, all of their patients suffer from these things. And in addition, training about communication skills. How do you elicit the patient's most fundamental concerns and hopes. Mm -hmm. That's a skill set. It's a procedure. It requires training. Those things are absent from the curriculum now. 
And that really handicaps doctors and other health clinicians in their ability to try to care for their fellow human beings. And so our mission at CAPSI, and Bryn has really led this initiative, is both to expand the specialist delivery of palliative care and palliative medicine so that when patients who are really complicated or have very challenging situations, doctors have someone to turn to to get help with those situations. But we also very strongly believe that every clinician who takes care of living patients, so perhaps we could exclude pathologists and maybe even some radiologists who don't touch living patients for the most part, every other physician and nurse practitioner and physician assistant has to be trained in these core skills, management of symptoms and skilled communication. So we're doing both. Well, funny you should mention Bryn because she joins us now from Brooklyn. Bryn Bowman, she has been the chief strategy officer serving some 1,700 healthcare organizations and 70,000 clinicians and administrators, and she has succeeded you. Bryn Bowman, congratulations. Thank you, and thank you for having me here to speak with you today. How has the baton passing been for the two of you? You know, I think I can say um, that we have planned this transition for quite a long time now. Um, and so have been able to make a smooth transition. Um, and fingers crossed, we are in the early days. But I joined CAPSI, the Center to Advance Palliative Care, in 2013. Um, and so I have the benefit at this point of having grown up inside of the organization and, and grown along with our, our, our membership structure. Um, and I have the benefit of, of having had Diane's mentorship um, and getting to work side by side with her over those years. So I think we're in good position to pass that baton smoothly. Good. There's been incredible growth in palliative care here in the U.S. in the what, past three decades. Um, it's no, no small measure due to the work of people like the two of you. Um, and yet there's still confusion uh, among the public in general and among healthcare professionals um, as to exactly what palliative care is and how it's different from hospice care. Um, how, how do you, um, how do the two of you explain that difference to your colleagues in healthcare and to the public? So I think we can start by defining palliative care. Um, and palliative care is specialized care delivered by an interdisciplinary team to relieve um, the symptoms and the stress and the suffering associated with a serious illness. And it's uh, palliative care is based on need, not on a patient's prognosis. Um, and so a patient who's received a diagnosis of serious illness and is in treatment for a cure um, is eligible for palliative care. A patient who is living with a serious illness over months or years, um, for example, dementia, um, is appropriate for palliative care and patients who are living with a terminal diagnosis. So whereas hospice um, and the hospice benefit um, is for patients who are within six months of the end of life, palliative care is really 
um, a service that works alongside disease treatment and the clinicians providing that disease treatment throughout the course of a serious illness. In terms of um, the perception of palliative care, like you say, there is widespread misunderstanding about who is eligible for palliative care and how it works in the life of a patient and as part of the, the care team caring for that patient. Um, CAPSI performed market research in 2011 um, and again a couple of years ago to understand whether patients and families, um, representative you know, patients out in the world, are familiar with the term palliative care and understand what it means for them, and whether clinicians, healthcare professionals who might refer their patients to palliative care, are familiar with that term and understand what it means. Um, and you're right that there is um, confusion about uh, about palliative care and when patients are eligible. And the risk of that confusion is that a patient who may really benefit from those palliative care services. If you take that first example that I mentioned of maybe it's a middle-aged patient with a diagnosis of cancer who's going for cure, um, but is really going to have burdensome symptoms um, and decisions to cope with um, during the course of, of treating that cancer, that patient might really benefit from palliative care to support them and their family, family through that journey. Um, but if their oncologist isn't aware that palliative care is appropriate for patients early in the disease trajectory, they may be less likely to refer that patient to palliative care. So CAPSI and our colleagues in palliative care around the country do a lot of um, work to, to try to educate and bring that message both to the public uh, so that patients understand that they can ask for palliative care if they need it, and to healthcare professionals. One of the ways that we do that is we have a website called getpalliativecare.org. And that website is for patients and families, and it uses a blog and podcasts um, and information to tell the story of how palliative mm -hmm. care acts in patients' lives. Um, what the impact of, of those services means for a patient who's undergoing disease treatment and how it helps them cope um, with that illness um, and be living, um, living to, the, you know, to, the, to the best extent of their goals and capacity um, as, they, as they go through that disease treatment. Um, and so that's one of the ways that we try to get the word out about how palliative care can act to, to, to benefit patients' quality of life. You know, we are, you do see palliative um, teams routinely integrated in the care of people with some serious illnesses in some care settings, but not all. Um, if you have a cancer diagnosis, say, uh, and are being treated at a large medical center, you're probably likely to have palliative folks as part of your care team. Um, but maybe not if you have, I don't know, end-stage kidney disease or if you have a neurological condition. Um, why is there a discrepancy among diagnoses? So I think the kind of the foundational issue that, that might sit beneath that question is that healthcare organizations are not required to achieve a certain level of access to palliative care. So it is the case, um, and I really credit Dr. Meyer um, and, and her work over the years for this, but it is the case that the large majority of large hospitals in the United States have palliative care programs. Um, and to your question of who gets that palliative care, 
many of those hospitals will put in place um, a, a trigger um, or something of a workflow to say if a patient has these needs or this diagnosis, um, they will automatically be considered for a referral to palliative care. And their treating clinician would evaluate that referral. And so that's kind of your best case scenario. Um, if a hospital has um, staffed their palliative care team appropriately to be able to serve all of those patients who really would benefit from palliative care, and there's a system in place to identify which patients need that care. Um, if you are being seen at a smaller hospital, it is less likely um, that you may have access to a palliative care team. Um, we see that in the data. And I think the, the third setting that we want to consider, consider is um, a patient may have access to palliative care when they're being seen in the hospital in a moment of crisis, but when they are mm. discharged and living with that serious illness in the community and receiving care at an outpatient clinic um, or in their home, if they're homebound, do they have access to palliative care outside of the hospital and in the community? And here again, we see a lot of growth around the country. Um, there are a lot of hospitals and health systems who have expanded their inpatient palliative care services um, so that now they, for example, can follow a patient post-discharge and provide visits to them in their home um, and make sure that their symptom management um, is in place and that their family caregivers are appropriately supported such that that patient can, can, can be at home safely and avoid a future crisis. Um, other health systems may contract with community-based agencies, hospice or home health agencies who provide separate palliative care services to the patients in their communities. Um, and so we see a lot of growth in access to palliative care in community settings. Um, but uh, it is certainly the case that not every patient in every community has that access to palliative care specialists. Um, and when you think about the large amount of time that a patient can live with that illness, whether it's cancer treatment or dementia or uh, renal disease, as you say, or heart failure, and who might really benefit from that support, um, again, to help support families to care for their loved ones um, or to help avoid a crisis, uncontrolled symptoms that could lead you to the emergency department, access to occasional palliative care consults while you're receiving care in the community, um, it really fills an important gap for those patients. Do the two of you see a path forward for, for change in this uh, regard? Like I'm, one thing I'm wondering about is governmental pressure on insurance companies and Medicare to make palliative care available or uh, make, make it a an expected service uh, that's available for for citizens. I I think it is actually kind of stunning when you pause and think about it how rapidly palliative care in hospitals has spread despite the fact that there is no requirement that it do so. Mm -hmm. um, and people may not be aware that hospitals, in particular, have to be accredited before they can get paid. And there are only two accrediting organizations in the United States. Um, so they, they have some competition now. There used to be only one. 
And those accrediting bodies have a you know, long checklist of requirements that hospitals have to meet in order to receive accreditation. Without accreditation, they don't get paid. So as you can see, hospitals are highly, highly motivated to, to meet the requirements for accreditation. Unfortunately, palliative care is not one of those requirements. Despite how widespread it already is in hospitals, despite the fact that everyone agrees that it's an essential component of quality of care for people with complex and serious illness, which of course is the great majority of people who are hospitalized. Um, and the reasons, it's sort of embarrassing, but the fact is that the reason they don't add new requirements is because hospitals are a very powerful lobbying force in Washington, and they do not want any new requirements. No matter how logical, how appropriate, how needed, they feel strangled by requirements, and mm -hmm. they don't want any new ones, and they will lie down on the tracks to prevent any new ones from being passed, which is why when we talk to these accrediting bodies, which we've been doing for years, asking them to require palliative care as a condition of accreditation, they say back to us that will require an act of Congress. Well, an act of Congress requires that you not have widespread opposition from the industry. Mm -hmm. Sounds like there's a need for leadership from, from hospitals. Uh, yeah, there's a need for leadership in, in their associations. Hospitals have already led. Um, as Bryn mentioned, 94% of hospitals with more than 250 beds already have a palliative care team. So this is not a new um, concept in hospitals. It's a matter of standardizing the quality of those teams. That's what accreditation would enable us to do. Diane, you talked about the policy and accreditation levers. Um, there are health plans who connect their members to palliative care um, or who are providing a palliative care benefit. Um, so in California, SB 1004 was passed several years ago, allowed for Medi-Cal plans um, to connect their members with serious illness to palliative care teams. Um, there are commercial health plans who have um, cultivated um, contracts or partnerships with palliative care programs um, to connect their members to palliative care services. So you see pockets of you know, financial stakeholders outside of the U.S. government who understand the value of palliative care um, for their members or for their patients um, and who have invested in those services and are learning from those services. Um, but again, it's not standardized. Um, so some Medicare Advantage plans may offer a supplemental benefit of home visiting palliative care, um, and others may not. And so you know, part of what we do at CAPSI is to be aware of where all of that innovation and that change is happening, and to make sure that we are able to, you know, to the best of our ability, to catalog the impact of those changes and to catalog best practices so that short of or until there are requirements for access to palliative care, 
um, we can be further and further developing the case to those stakeholders that palliative care is right for healthcare organizations and palliative care is absolutely right for patients and families. Um, it's the, the rare win-win. And so we, we continue to make the case and demonstrate to those stakeholders how it can be done um, up to and until there are requirements and standards in place. Bryn, you just used a phrase that I hear a lot from people both in palliative care and in hospice, and that's patients and families. And I want to ask the two of you about patients who are alone, the solo patient without support. How is the care for that person different? It's much harder because our healthcare system uh, implicitly relies very heavily on family, friends, companions, um, unpaid, untrained loved ones to take care of chronically ill people over many, many years. And therefore, when someone doesn't have that kind of community around them, the healthcare system is at a loss. One way of thinking about this is as a cost shift. That is, the healthcare system is designed to shift the costs of basically long-term support for people with chronic illness, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or stroke or Parkinson's or Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, or heart failure or so many different chronic diseases, frailty, um, emphysema, COPD. If there's nobody around to manage the medications, communicate with the doctors, schlep people from one appointment to the next, notice when things seem to be going south, we don't have an alternative other than placing a patient in a nursing home. And as you may know, a very large majority of Americans will say, if you ask them, that going to a nursing home is a fate worse than death. That is, they don't want to go to a nursing home. And I don't want to overemphasize that fear of nursing homes because there are also many people who thrive in a nursing home with the, with the company, with the attention, with the socialization. Um, but the way we underfund nursing homes, I mean, we have people doing the personal care of of our loved ones who get paid something like $9 an hour. And the turnover in nursing homes is over 100% per year, again, because of how we underpay. That is the solution that we offer for people who, as we say, are unbefriended. Hmm. Don't have someone who can step up and basically put everything else in their life aside to care for the patient. And it's, you know, it's an indictment of our society that we basically dump that entire responsibility on families and other dear ones. And if you don't have that, we don't really pay for other solutions short of nursing home, which, by the way, is not paid for by Medicare and is predominantly covered by Medicaid. And you have to be, you either have to spend down to Medicaid eligibility or be poor to begin with, in order to have access to Medicaid coverage. 
So it's it's a very broken system, and it urgently needs to be fixed. And if I had a magic wand and could make one change in the day-to-day experience of people living with serious illness, particularly people who are homebound, it would be adequate payment for personal care. Um, whether that is a caregiver who's paid for their time um, to help a, a patient with their activities of daily living or somebody who's hired to, to come into the home and provide that care. Mm-hmm. Um, and we may, you know, see that in the in the future, given what happens on the Hill. Um, we'll see. Um, but that is the kind of day in and day out care that that patient who's alone, as you say, just absolutely needs to, to stay at home if that's what they want. We're talking about palliative care today on the program with Bryn Bowman, the incoming executive director of CAPSI, the Center to Advance Palliative Care, and its director emerita and strategic medical advisor, Diane Meyer. Bryn, can you tell me about your own experience with palliative care? I can maybe start with a story from my own life from the past year and a half. Um, My great aunt, Marilyn, um, was 87 and had been living with well-managed diabetes for years, but otherwise did not have any significant health conditions. And um, without going into detail, her health did take a a very sudden turn and she ended up in the hospital um, on dialysis. Um, And my aunt was really loving to us kids, but but quite private um, about her own kind of hopes and dreams and plans. Um, My uncle, her husband, had passed away several years prior. Um, And she had two sides of her family, the side that she grew up in um, and the side that she married into, which was my side. And of course, both sides were terribly concerned and visited her in the hospital. And she was facing a treatment decision Um, And the two camps of the family had really different opinions about what might be the best course of action for her. Um, And she could talk to us. Um, She was aware of what was happening to her. Um, And she was very much trying to um, make all of her relatives feel better in that moment. You know, in a way she wanted to care for us because she saw that we were we were scared um, and we were hurting to see her hurting. Um, but so it developed into a, into a conflict that felt terrible for everybody. Um, and she was laying in a hospital bed in pain. And so we did ask to see the palliative care team, of course, being in this line of work. Um, and the palliative care team called a family meeting. Um, and, and so both sides of the family were there. My aunt, was, of course, was there. Um, and the palliative care social worker and physician together... Um, sat down and said hello to all of us, um, and then asked my great aunt a series of questions to help her articulate, I think, things she probably, it certainly had never articulated to any of us um, in all the years that we'd known her, about, about what was important to her in that moment. And in the course of that conversation, um, we all heard how much she loved us, and she heard how much we loved her. Um, We all learned how afraid she was, um, and she was able to talk about that. She learned um, what the potential outcomes and risks could be of the different courses, the different decisions that she was facing, um, the options that she could choose. 
Um, and she made a decision that all of us felt great about because we knew it was hers. And she passed away a couple of days later, but I don't think that our family, I think that our family mm. would have experienced a trauma, mm -hmm. whatever decision was made and whatever ultimately was the outcome of that decision had we not been given the opportunity to talk about it together and mostly to listen to her. Um, and I think in that moment without the palliative care team, it was nobody else's job to have that conversation. And and the team was so skilled at, at mm. eliciting that information from her and from us. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was a huge gift to the family because it allowed us to to grieve but to heal um, and not hang on to those questions about what if. Um, so that was a personal experience where I, you know, was reminded of just how powerful this work is. I think that's something that we all forget is how skilled these team members are. That this isn't just a opportunity to have difficult conversations. These are skilled conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, and I would, I would add to that that we would never think of sending a medical student or a resident in to do a surgical procedure on a patient without a lot of training and supervision and practice and hovering. And yet we think nothing of sending a medical student or a resident in to have a conversation, to get consent for a procedure or uh, to get someone to make a decision about whether they want cardiopulmonary mm -hmm. resuscitation. And the, the, the fact is it is a skilled procedure and it requires training just as any other skilled procedure, including surgery, for example, requires. And we've got to change the culture of medical education to recognize that and incorporate And that. Diane, I would add to that, so CAPSI provides clinical education to people who are not trained palliative care specialists. So from any other specialty or context, primary care, people working in the emergency department or in a cancer clinic, in core skills like how to have a skilled conversation with patients about their goals of care. Mm -hmm. um, and we break those conversations down into techniques that, like Diane said, you can practice. You can see good examples and bad. Um, you can kind of signpost a conversation as that professional to say, I know these are the techniques I want to use and what I need to remember at, at, at different junctures. And the feedback that we get from that training is overwhelming gratitude in most cases um, that that there's a, a freedom and a sense of empowerment and being able to have that compassionate conversation with a patient and understand and get to know that patient better and what's important to them that I think a lot of clinicians feel is missing in their daily practice and again that they haven't been trained to be able to achieve um, and so we 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 hear a lot of positive feedback and, and gratitude about that. Um, and during the pandemic in the last uh, year and change, we've seen a huge number of new clinicians who have never come to CAPSI in the past, um, coming to us for training in communication skills, coming to us for conversation scripts about how to talk to patients about their goals of care in the context of COVID or how, again, to, to coordinate and conduct that family meeting. What are they, what are they saying to you? What are they saying to us about, about the communication training? Yeah. Or what or why they're coming to you? I think in the absence of 
Diane, I'd love to hear if you think about this the same way, but in the absence, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic, of any other or life-saving strategies, certainly medical interventions for people who have COVID, um, but there wasn't a game plan. And, and often the only game plan that there could be for a clinician looking at a patient who had come to the emergency department um, was to have that conversation with the patient about what mattered to them, about what was going to be the best course of action, um, because there weren't a lot of other tools at the disposal. Um, and the decisions that clinicians and patients were facing were are difficult anyway when you're facing a serious illness um, or a life-threatening illness. But in the context of COVID, there's so much fear of the unknown. Um, and there was fear of, well, yes, fear of the unknown. Um, and so the clinicians that came to us asking for those scripts wanted the security, the comfort of a protocol, of a set of steps to fall back on um, when everything else was chaotic and was, was terrifying. Um, and so we, for example, one script was for uh, primary care practices who had patients who were living with a serious illness before COVID, cancer, um, you know, a, a, a COPD, for example, and wanted to proactively reach out to those patients over the phone and talk to them about what would be important to them if they did get sick. Mm. Would they want to try to shelter in place at home? And what would it take for them to do that safely? if that was what they wanted. If they became very seriously ill and needed to go to the hospital, who in their life should know about that and would be able to support them? Um, and what did they need to plan for? And that conversation in that moment of time was a very important intervention um, for those primary care physicians and for those patients. Talk to me about CAPSI's program called the Tipping Point Challenge? So the Tipping Point Challenge is CAPSI launched a couple of years ago, and it's a national challenge um, around strengthening care of people with serious illness. The first iteration of the challenge um, was in 2019. Um, and what we did was ask healthcare organizations around the country, and Providence St. Joseph was absolutely one of them, um, to compete to see how many clinicians they could train in core palliative care skills. Um, and so again, we're talking about communication skills. We're talking about safe management of symptoms. Uh, we're talking about supporting family caregivers and the work that they do to care for their loved ones with serious illness. Um, CAPC has an online continuing education curriculum that provides uh, credits for physicians nurses, social workers, and case managers. Um, and it teaches those core skills that we really believe are important for any health professional who cares for a patient with serious illness to have. Um, those skills should not be relegated only to the domain of, of the palliative care specialists. Um, and so organizations around the country competed um, and many developed really creative campaigns to get the word out about education, held contests within their organizations to see who could do the most training. Um, and the idea was not just to, um, to reach a lot of people with that education, which I'm proud to say we did do, 
um, but also to learn about how those organizations that succeeded in you know, training many of the, the um, healthcare professionals in those organizations, what strategies had they used to do it? Um, had they uh, decided that it was important for their hospital, for example, to put in place uh, onboarding requirements and palliative care education for any new nurse that was hired to the hospital? Um, had they developed a program specifically for hospitalists and, you know, created a, a custom learning pathway um, based on that hospitalist scope? So we learned a lot of interesting stories there, and a lot of organizations around the country um, got very invested in that competition. We're now in the second iteration of the Tipping Point Challenge, and this one is about innovation. Um, so whether it's, um, again, training uh, people who are not working in the specialty of palliative care and core palliative care skills, whether it's connecting patients to specialty-level palliative care in a new way. Um, so reaching a new population of patients via telehealth um, or expanding your specialty palliative care services into outpatient clinics. Um, how are healthcare organizations creatively expanding and strengthening access to their, to their palliative care services? Or how are healthcare organizations working to develop care pathways such that Patients who could benefit from palliative care are identified every time in a timely manner and connected to the appropriate services. So we're calling for those creative mm -hmm. programs, initiatives, innovations, and collecting those stories. Um, and when we get them, not only will we announce kind of the winners who were able to demonstrate you know, real growth and access or quality of the services that they're providing to their patients with serious illness and those patients' families, um, but also to, to take those innovations as a whole and understand, you know, what makes them tick? What were the common success factors that organizations need to understand if they want to replicate those interventions? So that'll be the next stage of our work. And I really encourage anybody listening to this podcast um, who has done one of those things and wants to, to tell the field um, about it to please submit that idea to the Tipping Point Challenge. Um, we're really excited to see see the submissions that come in. We have a link to your website on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Can I add to what Bryn said just for a sec and make the point that the Tipping Point Challenge is a manifestation of CAPSI's entire method, which is we don't make up what best practices are. We troll the field. We look really hard for effective models, innovative models, mm. and then we identify those, the people who are leading those programs, and we ask them if we can interview them and pull from them how they did it technical assistance. What did you do first? What did you do second? What do you wish you had done differently? What would you advise others to do who want to do something simple, similar? And then we take that information and transform it into transferable skill sets. So this brilliant idea that was manifested at one 300-bed community hospital becomes widely available and diffused across the country. So the Tipping Point Challenge is another version of us trolling for great ideas that can be scaled. It, it is a brilliant um, model of sharing the wealth and uh, congratulate, congratulate you for um, spreading 
spreading really great information. Um, our our time's drawing to a close, and um, I want to I want to ask you about the the national seminar. I'm, I was surprised that you're not going to host it this year or next, and um, I'm curious uh, about that decision and why why not do something virtual, uh, seeing that everyone is seems to be doing that. You know, it, well, first of all, it made us very sad not to have the CAPSI seminar because it's the time of the year when you see the colleagues that you only get to see once or twice a year. And it's so good to make those connections, to, to maintain those connections. Um, but we prefer to be on the, you know, re- responsible and cautious end of public health regulations and not the reverse. Um, and there's been so much uncertainty about the course of this pandemic um, and so it felt like the safest and most responsible thing to do to plan not to have that in-person event um, either this past year or the coming year. Last year, CAPSI did a four-day, you know, four afternoons in a row virtual event in lieu of the seminar, and we called it the CAPSI 2 by 4 And we had wonderful uh, conversations with people who called in and were willing in front of hundreds of people to turn their video on and weigh in on a discussion or share what they were seeing and experiencing in their organization. Um, and we learned a lot from that. It certainly doesn't replace the face-to-face. Um, but we learned that people really are this year getting more comfortable with those virtual interactions and that in a way they're democratizing. I think people would be less likely to stand up in a ballroom and walk up to the microphone and ask a question of a keynote speaker than they are to, you know, press that button on their Zoom and join in the conversation. So there were upsides to that. We learned about that. But after the event had ended, we thought, why would we limit this kind of connection to once a year? And so what we're looking at now in the second year of the pandemic, as we know, people continue to to be tired and to to be stretched is making sure that we're doing a really good job of connecting palliative care professionals all year round. Um, so at the end of this month, on April 28th actually, very soon, uh, we'll be launching a new program at CAPSI called the CAPSI Circles. Um, and that will be an online place for palliative care colleagues to join into a conversation on a topic of their choosing, whether it's how to bring palliative care services into a nursing home or inpatient palliative care best practices um, or a CAPSI circle and an interest group for, for new palliative care leaders who are you know, new to the field and, and, and getting their feet under them. Um, so that's one way that we're doing that. Um, we're looking at different ways, too, for virtual educational events throughout the year um, to really boost the interactivity there so that people feel like rather than just watching a presentation and learning information, they're able to connect with one another. Um, I will say the other the other connection point that we've built into our programming over the last year is not specific to palliative care. It's really for any health professionals out there feeling the brunt of this pandemic and its well-being debriefing sessions. Um, We have now hosted uh, two training events so that any health professional, any discipline, role, again, context or type of organization um, can learn how to host a debriefing session for their peers. Um, And it is not a 
a self-help group. It is a chance for colleagues to just express what they have been seeing and feeling at work um, and say out loud the things that you often keep to yourself. Um, we are working with a, a brilliant social worker from Duke named Vicki Leff to help us train those facilitators. And CAPSI is also providing well-being debriefing sessions ourselves. So anybody, you know, they're free in public, anybody from Providence St. Joseph or across the country can go to our website and sign up to join one of those debriefing sessions and just have a, a safe, protected space to talk about what your experiences at work in the pandemic has been over the last year. Um, and so we, we want to, yes, continue our teaching, um, but also to make sure that health professionals out there get the support they need um, to stay resilient during this period of time. That's terrific. And um, again, you'll find a link on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. Bryn, uh, you're following in the footsteps of um, of a giant, um, a certified... Don't I know it. A certified genius. In fact, card-carrying genius. Um, tell us what's in your heart as uh, this transition happens. I... So Diane is only, I don't know, Dan, Diane, what, probably two, five foot four, um, five foot but three. I know that I am <laughs> five foot three, but somehow her shoes are gigantic. <laughs> um, I, I feel so grateful heading into this transition because, um, you know, before I joined CAPSI, this was the mission that was in my heart to improve the experiences of um, people who are at a very vulnerable point in their lives because of a serious illness. Um, and when I met Diane and when I became acquainted with CAPSI as an organization and how CAPSI does its work, um, I was just in awe of how effective CAPSI's approach to scaling up this intervention that is a new way to care for people with serious illness, that is palliative care, um, with how effective CAPSI's approach to that mission has been. Um, and so to be taking that baton in this moment, um, you know, from a, a platform that has been so solid and so effective for so many years, uh, it just means that, it, that the future contains so much opportunity. Um, so I am excited. Um, I am grateful. Um, and like I said, big shoes to fill. Indeed. Diane, um, you're, you're leaving quite a legacy, and you're leaving CAPSI in good hands. I am so fortunate to have happened on Bryn, or Bryn to have happened on us. There's so much chance in life, so much luck. Um, and I'm really aware of our great good fortune. I would have had great difficulty stepping down from my role as director of CAPSI if I didn't have a perfect confidence in my successor. And I do have perfect confidence in my successor. And I'm looking forward to seeing how she takes both the organization and the field it serves 
to a completely different level, a higher level. And uh, I have no doubt but that she will do that. Well, on behalf of um, countless patients and families who have benefited from being heard and being seen because of your work, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Diane Meyer is Director Emerita and Strategic Medical Advisor at the Center to Advance Palliative Care. She's Professor of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical School in New York, where she also holds a Chair in Medical Ethics. In 2008, she was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. She's being succeeded at CAPSI by Bryn Bowman, who until now has been the Chief Strategy Officer, serving the organization's some 1,700 healthcare members and 70,000 clinicians and administrators. You'll find links to CAPSI's website and programs and social media on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Our podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on Twitter at human underscore caring. Our episodes are produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. The executive producer is Mike Drummond. Our theme music is written by Roger Neal. Subscribe where you get your podcasts and help us spread the word on social media. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.